Well, it is uh, December 11, 2005, and we will be discussing uh, Epistle to the Hebrews Lesson 8. Let's uh, open in prayer. Our Father, I thank you for uh, each one who has uh, taken the time uh, to uh, study this week, Father, and uh, taken the time to uh, spend uh, here together uh, studying your word. I thank you for uh, their diligence. I thank you also, Father, for their desire to know uh, how you have expressed yourself in, uh, in this book. And, Father, in, in, uh, in the pages of our Bibles, we, thank, we find such uh, rich things. We thank you also, Father, that you continue to tell us how to live. And we thank you that it is only through the power and the, uh, the life uh, that was resurrected uh, that Yeshua's sacrifice was sufficient. His uh, life is a life of obedience. And we thank you that you have given us this by grace, that we may live pleasing to you. We thank you. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Shall we uh, chant the blessing, please? Baruchut Adonai Hamvorach Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Leolam Ba'in Baruch Adonai Elohim Melech HaOlam Asher Bachabanu Mikoha Amin Benatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, we're finishing up our discussion on uh, Hebrews uh, chapters 3 and 4. Well, most of chapter 4. Um, and the discussion and the picture of... Uh, oh, it bends it out there. The picture of Shabbat, the land and uh, the world to come, as it's discussed in those, in those levels. Uh, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And that's Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. And this is really the end, the concluding statement, the concluding statements uh, that we have, of, of what we have been studying for the past two weeks. Uh, well, three weeks with our break there. Uh, what we've been studying is, in fact, this relationship. And we, we almost casually refer to this relationship uh, in, in many things that we do. And uh, for those of you who know uh, Civil War history and, and uh, uh, Thomas... And Thomas uh, um, uh, uh, Jackson and, and or Stonewall Jackson and his uh, famous uh, 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 quote before he died uh, as he's uh, lying there um, in the train station uh, there near Spotsylvania and, and uh, his wife is there and he gazes into the distance uh, with a distant uh, look on his in his eyes and says let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees and then passes away. Um, this is after uh, Jackson has expressed to his wife the... Uh, well, he asked her the question, is this the Sabbath? And she says, yes, it is. And he says, I have always thought it would be good to go to the Lord on the Sabbath. 
that's a Sunday, but we'll forgive him for that. His expression, though, is that he is he is finding this. Obviously, this is a, this is a delirious man. He's dying of it of an infection. He has yes he, he has very little conscious consciousness in these days that he's lying in this in this train station. Um, obviously, this is a this is a measure of his understanding and a, and a deep measure of his of his faith. He's made this connection for many years. This is not something new. We, we refer to it all the time. Uh, you know, uh, we talk about crossing over the Jordan, entering into the land, and talk about it as being, uh, well, where's that land? Well, it's a heaven. Uh, well, our, our writer here is referring to the world to come. And it's a matter of phraseology, maybe, maybe not, but it's a matter, uh, however you refer to it, it's talking about the same thing. Wherever it is that God will dwell, and we will dwell within eternity, that's, that's what we're speaking of. And so this is, this is not something that we're unfamiliar with. Uh, maybe we haven't necessarily understood why. And the book of Hebrews is the principal reason why it has become part of uh, specifically Christian doctrine. Uh, but we need to understand that what we have discovered is this is not something that was invented or an analogy or a metaphor that was discovered by the apostolic writer, but that it was very common and understood. And we saw that Psalms 95 itself makes these connections and uh, we'll, we'll continue to see that as we move through uh, the rest of this lesson this is really just a tying up the loose ends lesson over, over uh, our work that we've been doing along this line uh, we, we've seen there are really three levels of understanding regarding the Sabbath uh, it, it, it's seen in chapters 3 and 4 and we spent some time looking at the Sabbath because the Sabbath terminology helps us understand the analogy to the land, but more importantly, it helps us understand the analogy being made, or the reference, really not analogy, the reference being made to uh, the world to come, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, and we also, and we, we just briefly touched, because it's hard to go through those chapters without talking about the land, because that's the basis for the discussion. Psalms 95 is not talking about Shabbat, the Sabbath, however, it becomes a Sabbath song. Well, why? Because everybody's making these connections. They're seeing the connection. God intended it that way. It's not accidental. Um, so we see these three levels, uh, and, we, and we touched them briefly. Last week we spent more time on Shabbat, but we'll speak specifically about the land and the world to come level, which gets us to the main point. And remember, the main point is this, all the way through this book. We are talking about the relationship that these people, us as well, have in the in the living of their daily lives, what bearing does it have upon eternity? What bearing does it have upon the world to come? What what is there about what you do that lasts? What is it about what you do has an effect? These are troubling questions for us when we consider saved by grace as a standard doctrine, saved by grace. The reason why they're troubling questions is because it begins to sound almost like, especially when he talks about enter in, be diligent to enter into his rest. Well, what, what are you going to work at getting, if entering into his rest is being, entering into eternity, you're going to work at being saved? You know, these, these phraseologies, and oftentimes we're caught up in our own idioms. For most of my life, I've talked about people who are believers. They got saved at such and such a time, or whatever. So and so got saved. Well, it's not an incorrect thing to say. But what exactly did I mean? And can the word apply to something else? And the answer is yes, but we never use it that way. You know, if I, if I am about to die, and someone rescues me, I've been saved. But we don't talk of it that way. And because of that, we, we have always equated salvation 
with eternal salvation. And the scripture doesn't. And, it, and we, what we need to understand is when it doesn't, is it making an allusion to eternal salvation? Maybe it is, absolutely. But we need to be able to have this understanding what these variation or what these what these variations are levels are. There is a, there is a there is a especially in the Second Great Awakening here in America. There's been a profound from that in the mid 1800s. There's been a profound view, maybe because of hardship in in in, in the in the uh, late 1800s and early uh, early 20th century. Profound view that this life is simply something to be gotten through. Because it's all about, you know, it's all about somehow going on to heaven. Pie in the sky, by and by. And, and uh, I think that's a very sad view. Because that's not why we're here. We're not here simply to uh, twiddle our thumbs and wait until we're not here anymore. We're here to work diligently. And that's, and that's the drawing that from this passage and that's why this passage is somewhat Hebrews 3 and 4 is somewhat troubling that's why people have trouble with the book of James for the same reason it's troubling because we we say I'm saved by grace through faith what what, what does works have to do with it and uh, not understanding that relationship is caused by it's caused by a type of Greek philosophy that has invaded our theology that places a value upon spiritual things at the expense of physical. Not understanding that they both represent reality, which is what I believe this entire book of Hebrews is written about. It is written about the relationship between what is seen and what is unseen. And their unity in. So, let's get into it. Again, the Sabbath lessons. These are reviewed from last week. Uh, last week. Psalms 95, we saw starting in verse 7 and continuing through it. We saw this Hayom today. By the way, Hayom also refers to the day of the Lord. Hayom. Is that not interesting? To talk about the Sabbath pictures and Hayom, the end of time. Hayom, the day. Which is also then brings up the interesting question in Matthew 24, where Yeshua says, "Pray that Hayom does not happen on Hayom." <laughs> the Sabbath is actually what he says. Yeah. Um, yes, Hayom refers to the Sabbath. We saw specifically in Exodus 16 why it relates to the Sabbath. And if we were simply reading this in the Mishnah, we'd be going. Come on, grasping at straws. Three times it says Hayom in Exodus 16, and we're supposed to say Hayom, the day, today, applies to the Sabbath. And every time we receive that, we're supposed to think that. They're really stretching, aren't they? Well, what's interesting is, it's not just the Mishnah that does it. We, it does something that's familiar to us, and that is the book of Hebrews. The Epistle of Hebrews does the same thing. It's drawing these conclusions. Where did he get it from? Well, it's not uncommon. It was a common thing. We excuse the writer of the book of Hebrews because we find it was between the covers of our Bible. It's inspired. <laughs> An inspired mistake? No, it's inspired. It's inspired. <laughs> Absolutely inspired. But we need to be just as understanding. What we've been learning, and I hope that we've been learning, is as we go through Hebrews, it contains this almost 
and I, I don't want to use the word hermeneutic, but I'm, I'm compelled to at times because nobody understands what I'm talking about if I say pardes or whatever else. So hermeneutic, which is a doubtful word. Its etymology says that you basically discover what the gods mean. Well, that's what they teach you in, in, in theology, hermeneutics. How to read the scripture and understand what God means. Well, they're using... Hermes to do it, so I'm not sure of the relationship. But understanding the doubtful use of the or the doubtful re- reference of the word, the uses as it's used today, hermeneutics. How do we discover what it means? Well, what we discover in the book of Hebrews is the writer of the book of Hebrews uses not just doubtful, but very, very risky hermeneutics. Extremely risky. If we used, if we went to the lengths that this writer goes to to prove our point using scripture, people would accuse us of all manner of grasping at straws. Linking all of these passages that we did in Hebrews 1 and 2 by keyword, having left the main text and then linking the keywords, wow, that's stringing pearls may be the thing that Halil liked to do, but it's not something they'll teach you at Dallas Theological Seminary. What we discover then is not to, not to diss the hermeneutic of Dallas Theological Seminary, but what we've discovered is the hermeneutic, they would never have used that word, the hermeneutic of the writers of the apostolic scriptures, and especially this writer, is thoroughly, thoroughly Hebraic. It's rabbinic. To the extreme. It's why when we read then, uh, you may not be aware of the controversy, but uh, uh, men like uh, um, um, Monty Judah, who have, who have thrown the book of Hebrews out of their Bibles because they say it sounds too Greek, he obviously hasn't spent much time examining how non-Greek thinking the book is. It's not Greek thinking at all. It's precisely the opposite. In fact, it's my view that this book is written precisely to counter the Greek pers- perspectives on what is reality by showing the unity of what is seen and unseen. So, Hayom is a perfect example of this risky, risky hermeneutic. And yet we discover that it's, an, it's precisely correct. It's an orthodox church. Even though it's an orthodox for the church, it's so easy to follow when you look at some of the other women, right? Yes. Uh, and, and we looked at Exodus 16, 11 through 30, and then we see the Sabbath is about provision. First and foremost, the first introduction we have to Sabbath, other than outside of Genesis itself, where it's related to creation, is that it's a, it's a, it's a picture of the provision of God. It's the giving of the manna. And that on the day before the Sabbath, twice the amount is gathered, and it does not spoil. It's a picture of the work of God being something that man cannot rise to, cannot replicate, cannot do. It's something that is reserved for him. As we saw last week, the fact that rest itself was the creation of God. <clears throat> that in fact resting in God's work is a evidence of is, is belief that is evidenced or revealed by obedience. In other words, faith shown by works. Genesis 31b and 2 through 3, we see this is sanctified. But first thing sanctified by God is time itself. This is the account of the creation. Okay? We saw in Exodus 31 that it reminds us of the Creator. This is uh, Vishamru, where we are told to remember. 
The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel. Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it will be a sign. It's a sign. It's a sign of identity. It's a marker of identity that these are the people of God. But then it says it's a covenant. So it's a covenant and a sign. And we saw also that it precedes Sinai. Not as separate from Sinai, but as preceding Sinai. We look at covenants, we always have to be careful when we start to play games of separating. God's promises are singular and united. I know, that makes no sense. <laughs> but it's true, they're united. There's one thing, he wants to bring us back. And everything that he uses to do that are contained within his promises. The Sabbath is a sign, it's a mark of identity is what we saw. We saw the Sabbath comes on the seventh day, no matter whether we're ready or not. And this is, this, is, this is the important thing. In fact, if I were to say there's one thing, apart from rest, that the writer in Hebrews is trying to draw from the Sabbath, it's this. Preparation. It comes whether you're prepared or not. Preparation is our job before it comes. But after it comes, it's here. It doesn't matter. Whether you were prepared or not, you're done. <coughs> Uh, as, as anyone uh, who has kept the traditional Shabbat will tell you, you will never have everything done. <laughs> if you think you got it all done, there's something wrong. <laughs> so there will always be something left to pick up on Sunday. The preparation doesn't make it happen. This is the relationship between work and grace. Sabbath is, in fact, a picture and a expression of grace. And the preparation is the obedient deeds. The obedient deeds not get you to the Sabbath. They are simply responses to the fact that the Sabbath is coming. So we see that. That's exactly what James says. Show me your faith, or show me your works. <clears throat> show me your faith, and I will show you my faith by my works. And only God can lead us across the threshold. This is what we learned. This This is probably what he's drawing on most. Only God can lead us across the threshold. So, remember that picture of a threshold. We're talking about time. He then immediately takes time and spins it into this dimension of space, which is the land. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Let's read. And I'll go to our text we have here in our books. Let's see what page will it be. Page triple I, 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and Kohen Gadol of our confession, Yeshua who was faithful to him who appointed him, as also was Moshe and all his house, Moses. For he had been counted worthy of more glory than Moshe, inasmuch as he built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Moshe, indeed, was faithful in his house as a servant. For his testimony of those things which were afterward to be spoken. The Messiah is faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our confidence and the glorying of our hope firm to the end. Who's the, te- who's the, who's the house? Well, it's Moshe, our 
teacher or, or uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, is the house, but he's also in the house. He's a member of the congregation, right? So he's in the house. He's in the people of God. But who's the builder of the house? It's Yeshua. And that's exactly what he says. I mean, he doesn't even, he doesn't even try and dance around it. It's Messiah. He's, he's the son he's over the house. Okay? He's built the house. Was Moses faithful? Yes. Now, remember, our contrast would say, Yeshua is better than angels. Angels are bad. <laughs> Yeshua is better than Moses. Moses is bad. No, that's a contrast. And obviously the writer has not even, not even approached that. He's done the opposite. He's talked about the height position of angels and messengers of God. And then he shows that the message, messenger is simply some, someone conveying a message versus the son who has spoken. Okay? Now we have the same picture now as the builder. Okay? It's one thing that, oh, it's a great house. Look at that. Isn't it a great house? It's a great family. Yes, but the builder of the family, that, that's something. It's not to, it's not to diminish the build, it's not to diminish the house. Moses is not diminished at all, actually, in this. Instead, what we see is Yeshua is magnified. So it's a comparison. So if Moses was faithful, how much more faithful then was Yeshua? And it's, we were, as we're going to discover in these two chapters, that's precisely his point. He's saying Moses did a great job. But, it, but did it lead to the conclusion that we needed? No. There's still something left undone. And Yeshua does lead to the conclusion, as we're going to see. Uh, Psalms 95, uh, 7 and verses following the picture of the people standing at the edge of the land. Here it is. They're, they're at the edge of the land, and they're saying... Why did you do all... It's, it's basically, it's drawing from Numbers 20. They're standing there in the wilderness at the southern edge of the land and complaining because there's no water, right? There's no food, no water, but no water specifically. And instead of understanding that they're being... I mean, it's been 38 years. This is it. We're, this is it. We're going back up. Now we're going to go in. I mean, they knew that, Right? All of that work, all of that wandering, all of that, uh, you know, I mean, their shoes didn't wear out, neither did their clothes, but it's still a big deal. It's been 38 years. We've been waiting for 38 years. Here we are. We're about to go in, and now we've got to whine about it. And that's what Psalms 95 is drawing this picture. Here you are at the threshold. You have gotten to the very doorway and ready to enter the land, and you give up. So it's a great picture for us. It's a great warning. Let's go to Numbers 20 and we'll read it again. It is a uh, troubling passage for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons why it's troubling is what Psalms 95 says of it as well. We'll get to that in a moment though. Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin. In the first month, what month would that be? Yes, in the first month, the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, if only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Who are those people? 
Who are they speaking of? Hmm? The generation that died in the wilderness. So that, who does that make these people? Ah, isn't that interesting? Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that, where, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring, up, to bring us up into this evil place? It is, it is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. Remember what the spies brought out of the land for 38 years earlier? Nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them and the Lord spoke to Moses saying take the rod you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together speak to the rock before your eyes and it will yield its water thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals this is not a private thing this is a public a public display that's what God wants. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron said, Aaron, because you did not believe me or to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given him. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. What did they do? They complained. They accused God of abandonment. And worse, Moses and Aaron were unbelieving. They had hardened hearts. Uh, that was from Hebrews, uh, Hebrews uh, 3, actually. They had hardened hearts. They were hardened by deceitfulness of sin. They went astray in their hearts. They did not know his ways. They had sin. They had unbelief. Go back to Psalms 95 real quickly. Uh, verse um, 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his, of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. Though they, they tried me. Though they saw my work for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts. And they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is what Hebrews 3 quotes. Did that generation enter the land? This generation in Numbers 20? Yes. And what is Psalms 95 talking about? Who... In Numbers 20, didn't enter the land. Moses and Aaron. Who's left to die? Moses and Aaron. Are not, that's right. Specifically mentioned they wouldn't die. They would enter the land. Isn't that cool? 
It's a little bit troubling when you read Psalms 95. They're like, oh, what are you talking about? And now Hebrews as well is quoting. is like, whoa, 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 stop. These are the good guys. These are the good guys you're saying didn't enter the land because of unbelief. Well, actually it is the good guys. It's Moses and Aaron. It's speaking about Moses and Aaron. It's also speaking about those who died. Uh, go to Deuteronomy 1, 34 through 36. This is kind of like the last bookend. That's true. What, what, what exactly was Moses and Aaron's sin? I don't think it's an easy solution. I don't think it's actually an easy explanation. But what was their sin? What do you think their sin was? They didn't, they didn't hallow God in front of the people. That's it. Do you want us to give you water? Do we have to give you water out of this? they didn't. And because of unbelief. What was their unbelief? That's right. What is unbelief? That's the question. What is unbelief? Did they not think water would come from the rock? If they just cooked. Well, maybe. I mean, it's, do you understand? It's not an easy. It's actually not easy to answer. Well, the first time that there was this rock water problem, and God had called him to take speak. Back and strike yes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the second time, God said, "Just speak to it. You don't need to beat up the rock again." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and so, in front of the entire congregation, he, he, he struck. God's order this time, and. I, I believe that the sin this is my own opinion this is my opinion because it, it really is debatable I believe the sin is narrowed down to actually disobeying it is the mark of unbelief and it is the mark of not hollowing God in the people's eyes that they didn't that he didn't fear God and striking the rock was disobedient and that's the sin if we hold fast, it says, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Moses and Aaron did a phenomenal job. And he says, they were faithful. They were faithful. He, he said, talking about Moses, he was faithful. Listen, this is, and this, this kind of goes, you know, these are, these are troubling questions when you start saying, well, well, how does it relate to the world to come? Well, this is troubling. I, I want, I, I believe that the writer wants us to make the trouble, ask the troubling questions, but not to go beyond them. He wants us to be encouraged, motivated, but not to build a theology. That's right. Exactly. Right. I agree. I agree. I agree completely. Go to Deuteronomy 1, 34 through 36. And the Lord heard the sound of your words. This is Moses recounting. Now, to tell you where this takes place, this is on the plains of Moab. We're going to see in Deuteronomy 1. This is on the plains of Moab. This is after, probably, I don't know, my, my guess is probably a year and a half, maybe after the occurrence there at uh, 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 Kadesh. Okay? 
And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb and the son of Jephthah. He shall see it, speaking of Joshua, and to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because they wholly followed the Lord. What is he speaking of there? Let's go back all the way to verse 19. This is where he's talking about leaving Sinai right there at the beginning, right after the exodus from Egypt, leaving Sinai. They went straight away to Kadesh Barnea and sent, tri- sent spies into the land, 12 spies. Two spies came back and said, it's a good, actually they all came back and said, it's a good land, it's wonderful, just like God said it was. Ten spies said, we can't go in. Two spies said, we can. And what was the answer? The people said, we like the guys that said that the ten spies, we, we're with them. You know, majority rules. Uh, and, what, and, and what was the consequence? This is what Moses is recounting on the plains of Moab 38 and a half or so years later. He's saying, God swore no one from that generation will enter, age 20 and, and, and up. No one, or above age 20, no one would enter except for two, Joshua and Caleb. The two good spies. The spies with a good report. So from that moment, and actually what you see is, and if you go back, if we went back to, uh, to Exodus and see this account, what we would see is, we see what happens is, um, actually it's not in Exodus, where is it? Numbers, right? Um, anyway, if we went back to that account, what we'd see is, the death starts happening right away. You know, I don't know. I can't remember. Twenty, twenty-five thousand are swallowed up, <laughs> you know, or 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 destroyed by a plague, whatever it was. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, there's 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 death that begins to occur immediately after that. What we're seeing in Deuteronomy or in in, in Psalms 95 and in Numbers 20 is the end bookend. There's only two left to fulfill that. It's Moses and Aaron. And we heard, there were three. Miriam. We read about Miriam. She dies. Now there's only two left. The two left, and that is the generation that will, in fact, die in the wilderness. It's done. So, what Psalms 95 is referring to is not so much the generation that's standing there won't enter. They entered in. Well, they did and they didn't. We're going to see there's a, to see that our writer in Hebrews is actually playing off this concept. Well, did they or not? He's playing with us this way for this precise reason. So, but they entered the land. They did enter the land. So who didn't enter the land? All those that had died between uh, earlier in Numbers and Numbers 20. And then in Numbers 20, we're told there's only two left. Moses and Aaron. Why don't they get to enter the land? Because they sinned in, in Numbers 20. Well, even before that, if you continue to read in, in Deuteronomy 1, where you are, because of you, the Lord was incensed with me too. You shall not enter I love that. You know, I, I personally think, I, I would never say anything against Moses, but I, per, I love that. It's like, okay, can I share a little bit here? It's partly you guys' fault. <laughs> you made me. Yeah. I mean, you guys were so frustrating. I just, I, you know, I lost it for a minute or whatever. <laughs> I love that. I really do. For the sin of unbelief and for not hollowing the Almighty, that's exactly why Moses and Aaron would not lead them into the land. Who led them into the land? And this is the point the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is 
What a great picture for me to draw upon here. Who led him into the land? It was, and, and actually, if you have some old versions of the, of the King James, it says Jesus led. Jesus did not lead them into. You know, he did, he led them in, but did not give them rest. And speaking of Joshua. And we're going to go to that. He, uh, Psalms 95, 7 through 11, and Hebrews 3, 6 through 4, 4 2. There's more than merely the entering into the land. It's about the world to come. Let's start. Pick up in Hebrews 3 where we were reading, uh, verse 6, and we'll read from there. But Messiah, as a faithful son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to our confidence and the glorying of our hope firm to the end. Therefore, even as the Holy Spirit says, quoting from David, today is your, today you are, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the provocation, at, like as in the day of the trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, proving me, and saw my works for four years. Therefore I was displeased with that generation, said they shall not, and they shall not err in their heart. They always err in their heart. But they, but they don't know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Beware, brothers, lest perhaps there be any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. But exhort one another day by day as long as it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Messiah if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm to the end. Second time he says that. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, when they heard, rebelled? For who, when they heard, rebelled? No, didn't all those who came out of Egypt by Moshe? Yes. For whom was he displeased forty years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Yes. To whom did he swear they wouldn't enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Yes. We see that they are, were not able to enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore, lest perhaps any one of you should seem to have come short of a promise of entering into his rest. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, even as they did. But the word they heard didn't profit them, because it, was, it wasn't mixed with faith by those who heard. This is a common phrase we hear. Faith mixed with works. It was mixed with faith. It's mixed with faith. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. I think that's far enough. We see here in... Uh, I, I put this in your homework on page 47 from, uh, from the uh, Babylonian Talmud, San, Sanhedrin uh, 110b. Our rabbis taught, the generation of the wilderness hath no portion in the world to come, as it is written. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. They shall be consumed, refers to this world, and there they shall die to the world to come. As it is said, 40 years long I was grieved with this generation of the wilderness, that is, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Here the Talmud is drawing the same correlation. I would say that the book of Hebrews draws a correlation long before the Talmud does. Uh, but they're, they're, the, the independent sources, they're not drawing from each other. Actually, they're drawing from the scripture. 
what, what the point is it's not out of thin air a writer of the Hebrews is not conveying something to his Jewish readers that they would not have already made some sort of connection with, with. 98a this is also from the same actually it's in the same uh, tractate this, this is an interesting myth legend as it were uh, well, first of all before I read this anytime you, anytime you start talking about the world to come or Messiah Elijah's got some role you know it's just what happens it is and, and one of the reasons it's, it's true is because that's the way that Malachi ends that's exactly the way it ends this is like okay you're looking for Messiah remember the law of Moses and I will send you Elijah in the latter days and the masters did the same thing that's right so there's a connection Rabbi Joshua uh, ben Levi met Elijah standing at the entrance to Rabbi uh, Shimon ben Yochai's tomb. He asked him, Have I a portion in the world to come? Which is an interesting question. Why would you ask that question? But <laughs> He replied, If this master desires it, Rabbi Yehoshua uh, ben Levi says, I saw two, but heard the voice of a third. He then asked him, When will the Messiah come? Go and ask him yourself. Was his reply. Where is he sitting? At the entrance. And by what sign may I recognize him? He is sitting among the poor lepers. All of them untie. All of them untie all at once. And rebandage them together. Whereas he unties and rebandages each separately. Before the treating of the next. Thinking should I be wanted. I must not be delayed though having a bandage a number of sores so he went to him speaking of basically he's saying look where is he he's at the gates which gates and, and it goes on to talk about it being gates of Rome he's outside the gates of Rome so I went to him he finds him you know he goes looking for Messiah there he is he's sitting at the gates of Rome and he's among the lepers so I went to him this is, this is uh, Jehoshua ben Levi says this So I went to him and greeted him, saying, Peace upon thee, master and teacher. Peace upon thee, O son of Levi. He replied, When wilt thou come, master? He said, Today, was his answer. Upon returning to Elijah, it's like, Okay, thanks. And then he leaves. Like, excuse me, he's Messiah. Why didn't you ask him more than that? <laughs> but he doesn't. Remember, this is a legend. This is supposed to, actually, it's supposed to be a teaching here. We're, we're learning something about this. Uh, upon returning to Elijah, the latter excuse me. So he goes. To, upon returning to Elijah, he goes back to Elijah. The latter inquired, well, "What did he say to thee?" He said, "Peace unto thee, O son of Levi." He answered. Upon he then Elijah observed, "He thereby assigned thee and thy father a portion in the world to come." He spoke falsely to me. As a Yehoshua ben Levi said, "Like he lied, he lied, stating that he would come today, but he is not." Look, it's today and he's not here. He said he'd come today. He didn't come today. He, that is Elijah, answered him, This is what he said to thee. Today, if you will hear his voice. <laughs> it's a slap. Yahushua Ben Levi has a lot of good things to say, but this is a great slap. You know, it's like, Did you hear his voice or not? So, anyway, but understand this relationship. This is, this, this is, you know, centuries. You know, actually, this is, this is probably, I, I can't remember exactly. I think somewhere around the end of the third century, end of the second century. But, a couple hundred years, anyway. Centuries later, 
after the book of, of the epistle of the Hebrews is being written. And they're playing with this game of today and the relationship to the land. And here, the relationship between today and the world to come. The same, this is a, it's a common, common theme. Okay? I have one more here, I think. Yeah, I do. Uh, Isaiah 60. Go to Isaiah 60, verse 21. But what's unfortunate in the, in the Talmud is obviously the, the sorting out between what's, what's a story, what's a myth, what's agata, and what's actual, what actually really happened. You know? <laughs> but regardless, we are able to discover, and as, as we've discussed before, wonderful arguments between people who study scripture and ways of looking at it. And you can always say, wow, I never thought of it that way. Extraordinary, actually, to find in one place such a treasure trove of dissenting opinions. <laughs> yeah, sparring, as it were. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Also, your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. This one verse is a doctrinal statement that Paul draws upon in Romans 11. That all Israel shall be saved. Paul was not alone. This one verse... Obviously, this, this, is, this is foundational. I can find it out in places too. But this is the basis. This verse is the basis for the understanding that all Jews have a part in the world of them, which is exactly what he says. And that's where Paul is drawing from that. Now, how, how that relates, how we can convey it, I don't know. But Paul draws from it all. And thus, all Israel shall be saved. He is relating to Isaiah 60, uh, 60 verse 21. He says, all Israel shall be saved. I'm just quoting. That's what he says. How that, what that means is, is uh, certainly open to debate. But that's what he's drawing from. He's drawing from Isaiah 60, verse um, 21. Um, trying to find the Romans here. It's 11, yes. I'm trying to find what verse it is. That's um, further down. It says and thus. <laughs> Actually, let's start. Let's go to Romans eleven verse twenty. It's speaking about branches that were broken off. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and, and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do, this relates back to the Hebrews and and that's right. And they also, if they did not continue, if they do not continue in unbelief will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. But if you were cut off out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Wow, is that like a slap in the face of replacement theology or what? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel 
will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And from and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It does say when the Gentiles, times the Gentiles, and they will be, all Israel will be saved. Right. So, so I mean, the, the, the debate is what does all mean? But the point is that this is, the, this is a basis for an understanding of this. Okay? Uh, and this is the last one I have from, the, from uh, Sanhedrin. This is uh, Bob Lee Sanhedrin 90A. Commenting, and this is actually Mishnah. This, this part is actually Mishnah, which means it's, it was written in the second century and it's, it, it was simply written down of what was, what was orally taught. So this is ancient, ancient, ancient stuff. All Israel have a portion in the world to come. For it is written, Thy people are all righteous, they shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. That's Isaiah 60, verse 21. But the following have no portion therein. See, not all Israel. Listen. Careful. <laughs> they got something else to say. He who maintains that the resurrection is not a biblical doctrine. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> Couldn't have been a Sadducee. <laughs> This is certainly uh, this is ancient, but uh, it, it's it's most likely actually most likely this 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 Mishnah, the oral variation of it, the parts of it uh, start coming into play probably in the century before uh, Yeshua's ministry, and as we're going to see here in a second, our portions brought in even after that because here it goes on to say, "He who maintains the resurrection is not a biblical doctrine." And also, he who does not main, he who maintains that the, the Torah was not divinely revealed. Okay, that includes Sadducees. Then they get that one. They're in on that one. <laughs> and an Epicurious or an Epicurean, which are basically they're just wanton sinners, right? Rabbi Akiva added, I love that. Oh, of course, we can't just leave it. Rabbi Akiva added, one who reads uncanonical books. <laughs> yeah, seeing that Rabbi Akiva is is a second century sage, that would there would be a clear understanding why he put that in there. Also, one who whispers over a wound and says, "I will bring none of these diseases upon thee, which I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee." Abba Saul says, "One who pronounces the divine name as it is spelt." So you can see variations here. Starts out pretty good, and then from there on, he's like, okay. Now, what, now, this is interesting. Now, it's interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, it's interesting because we see this picture of those who do not have a portion in the world to come, and, and, and this idea that those who are in the wilderness were included, right? We saw that earlier. They're not included. So that comes on later. Rick, if you go back to the Torah, you find out that people who were Israel were cut off from Israel so they were no longer Israel so in that case those were cut off for whatever they did that the Bible says they're going to be cut off well you know again we're, we're finding ways to explain it but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily I mean it's, it's an open it's open the scripture doesn't tell us but they're open to debate yeah it's exactly right Anyway, the point here is the view that entering the land or inheriting the land, there's a connection between the land, which is the commentary on Isaiah 60, verse 21, is saying, why do, the, why do all those, well, how do we know that Israel has a part in the world to come? Because they, God says he gave them the land. Well, what, why, why would that make a difference? Why would that make a difference? You know, and this is one of the things I've been always amazed as I read ancient texts that are so concise, almost you know, almost frustratingly concise. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> you know 
I'm wordy. They're not wordy. <laughs> i got to say it over and over and over again to make my point. They say it and they go, if you didn't get it, tough. <laughs> Move on. In other words, the point is, he gave it to them. He gave the land to them as an eternal as an eternal covenant. Well, if he gave the land to them as an eternal covenant, then they must be living forever. <laughs> it's like, well, duh. <laughs> and if they're living forever, it's got to be the world to come. Interesting. It's, interesting. it's an interesting approach. But that is kind of what Isaiah 60 says. Again, questionable hermeneutic here, but certainly arrive at the correct statement, which Paul draws from as well. Let's compare Moses and Messiah. Moses was faithful in his house. Was Yeshua? Absolutely. Remember what we saw in Hebrews 1 and 2? Where he stands before the Almighty and says, Here I am, and the children that you have given me. It's like it's the victory speech, right? It's like he's vindicated his and, and avenged those who have suffered for his name. And he presents himself before the Almighty. As we would see in Daniel 7, he presents himself before the Ancient of Days. Here I am, and I've brought all of them with me. This is picture. So, how's that compare to Moses? Was Moses faithful? Without question. Scripture says he was faithful. He's faithful. But how much more faithful is Messiah? Because he doesn't just bring them to the land. He brings them in to the land. Here I am with the children that you have given to me. I brought the whole house with me. Hebrews 3, 16 through 4, 3. Moses led them. He did a wonderful, wonderful job of leading them. You know, this is where we look at, we look at the sin of Moses and we go, wow. I mean, if, if Moses hadn't, we, we play this hypothetical game, if Moses hadn't spoken up several times, there would be no Israel. He'd make a new nation. He'd make another nation, yeah. And because one little sin, what was the sin? Unbelief. Unbelief. If the people didn't get to enter the land because of unbelief, how could Moses enter the land because of unbelief? You know, Rick, we, we normally don't touch it in those terms. Maybe that's why this book is is, is difficult for me to grab onto. You know, we talk about Eve and Adam and how they sinned. They, they did something. They did they something. They disobeyed. Don't touch it. They touched it. You know, don't eat it, they eat it, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it appears that the writer of Hebrews is touching that differently. It's not just you disobeyed me. You didn't believe me. Because if you had believed me, you would have obeyed me. I would, you didn't believe me. Uh, 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 yeah, but that's the point. And, that, and that's one of the things I think that we have traditionally but then done a uh, tremendous disservice to this passage for that very reason. Go back to uh, Hebrews 3 and 4. And just starting in verses uh, 10, uh, verse 10 where it says, They always err in their heart, they did not know my ways. And go over to verse 17, it says, He was displeased. Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? Go down, verse 18. But those who were disobedient. And they go to verse 19. They did not enter in because of unbelief. These are equal statements. Verse 12. 
Exactly. Unbelief. In other words, the, he, there's no such thing as unbelief and obedience. Or there's no such thing as disobedience and belief. Which is what he does when he goes down and he's doing a comparison, actually doing a contrast to them that believe. Verse 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, even as they did, but the word they did not profit them, because it wasn't mixed with faith, those who were heard. But we who have believed do enter that rest. And, excuse me, and it goes down, actually they makes the contrast again, verse 6. Seeing therefore it remains that some did not, should enter therein, and they to whom the good news was preached failed to enter because of disobedience. He's making this correlation. Disobedience equals unbelief. That's what we saw with Moses, isn't it? Moses and Aaron disobeyed. And what does God turn around and say? Because you did not hallow me in front of the congregation and did not, ob- and, and, and did not believe me, you will not enter the land. Well, what did they, they did something. What they did was evidence of unbelief. It's the same thing. Unbelief and disobedience are the same thing. Every time we sin, we are showing Unbelief. It's that simple. That's it. What was Eve's sin? Unbelief. If she had believed him. Had God truly said? We wouldn't be having fun. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> now we'd be studying it all the more. There it is. Unbelief equals disobedience. The works were finished. That's what he says. Oh, this is powerful. Oh, man, I love this. Verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed do enter into that rest, even as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter, rest. enter my, into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What's he saying there? You know that generation of wilderness, including Moses and Aaron? I'd already done everything. Everything. Their obedient deeds... We're accounted for. All they had to do is just do them. It was as if they had even done them. But because they didn't back it up and actually do it, it counted for nothing. Wow. This, and this is, the, this is the caution to this groups. Listen, all this has been done for you. Are you resting yet? <laughs> it's all been done for you. How could you just let it slip through your fingers? You've already gotten there. You've crossed the finish line, for goodness sakes. How can you not go to the winner's circle? There's another if. Well. If they shall enter into my yeah, So it's just like, okay, has it been done? Yes. Well, this is where... This is where most Baptists would want to stop reading. <laughs> this one done. It's finished. It is. It's the challenging words of James that obviously we, we trouble with. It's the challenging words that go on from here that we trouble with. What we need to rest assured is that these words of encouragement were not words of, you know, like hopelessness given to these people. He's saying, look, you're there. <laughs> Why would you give up now? Why would you worry about whether you have a place in the world to come? How could you possibly worry about why you ha- whether you have a place in the world to come? Unlike Yehoshua ben Levi. Do I have a place in the world to come? You don't even have to ask the question. Why should you even worry? Go to verses, uh, verse 4 through 10. For as he has said somewhere about the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's been done, right? It's been done. And this place again, they will not enter my rest. 
Seeing therefore it remains that some should enter therein, and they to whom the good news was preached before failed to enter because of disobedience, here's the contrast. He again defines a certain day today. Saying through David, so long as time afterward, just as has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Yehoshua, and it's speaking of Joshua, and some older versions, English Bible says Jesus, for if Yehoshua, Joshua, had given them rest, he would not have spoken afterwards of another day. In other words, the entering of the land, it worked. They got there, Joshua fulfilled the promise, God took them back to the land. But the whole thing was also another level. And he didn't take them to the ultimate rest. The land was not the world to come. There is a world to come, and it follows after this. There's another day. A Sunday. A Sunday. (laughs) All right. Knock it off in a peanut gallery. (laughs) There remains, therefore, a Shabbat rest for the people of God. What is the Sabbath rest? There remains. Not... There remains like, some people would view this, and not incorrectly, yes, see, the Sabbath applies, but I don't think that's the point. His point goes even further. He's saying, we've been talking about the Sabbath as if you you understand it. What remains, the Sabbath rest for the people of God, it says, there's still something yet out there. There's still something. You are this side of sunset. The sun has not set yet. And because the sun has not set yet, You've got work to do, right? Verse 10. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his work as God did from his. Now, once you cross the threshold, once the sun sets, and your beautiful wife lights candles, it's the end. There's no more work. It's done. Verse 11. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. What's left? When the sun sets, what's left? Is there any work left? There's no work left. What do you have to do to make Sabbath happen? What do you have to do for it to be the seventh day? The sun set. It happened. (laughs) It's done. There's nothing left to do. So it's resting in what he's done. He's done it. There's nothing added. Nothing could be possibly added. Actually, none of the work that you did before could possibly add to the fact that that is going to happen. It's what he did, always. It's what he does. He created it. And the world to come is the picture. So how do I enter the world to come? By grace through faith. There's nothing can be added. How could I possibly earn or work my way in? It doesn't get me there. In the verse 11, there's something interesting in the King James. After the example of unbelief, so obviously there would be an example of belief, what do we have for an example? Who's the example of belief? Somebody who obeys. That's right. And who was it? Joshua and Caleb. There you go. I, I love that. It's such a great picture. Which was why the King James probably felt liberty to translate the Greek Jesus. This is kind of cool. <laughs> we'll let people draw the conclusion here. Except that it says something wrong. It says he didn't, he didn't lead him into the rest. <laughs> but he did lead him into the land. That's the key. He led them into the land. God changed Hoshea's name to Yehoshua which is the shorthand is Yeshua he changed his name it was not Joshua son of Nun it was Hosea son of Nun God changed his name God changed his name for a reason we see that it is in fact Yeshua who leads us across and it is only by his leading Moses 
faithful. Moses has taught us faithfully. He has brought us all the way up to the threshold of the land. Just as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us. He, and as Paul speaks of in Romans, he, yeah, what a faithful tutor Moses has been. He has brought us all the way here and he's taught us. He's told us the standards of righteousness and sin. We are convinced that we are in need of a Redeemer. We are impressed that the Redeemer has in fact been faithful in all things. We know God's standard of righteousness can only be achieved by him who is not of the seed of Adam. And now what we discover is he has done his job. He's finished. And he is buried by the hand of of the Almighty. And we remember him, speaking of Moses. But it's Joshua. It's Yeshua that then takes us in. That final threshold steps across that brook that's called the River of Jordan. And we're there. The promise has been met. What a great picture. So here you are. You're right there. Okay, so Moses is, is, uh, did a great job and he got you all the way here. Why would you possibly turn around and say, never mind? How could you possibly say that? Remember, these people are standing here in this temple, understanding the commands of God, and understanding his promises and his provision in that, in that very temple, and understanding the wonderful experiences they had their life and their grandparents and their, their great-grandparents and the calling that God has called upon them as a nation. And now understanding who Messiah is and the Messianic age and how the temple has this tremendous purpose involved in it. And then be told, no, you can't be here anymore if you believe in Messiah. And they're going, which side am I supposed to be on? One side says, I must. I'm compelled. I mean, the very thing that Yeshua said, that I'm supposed to participate in the Passover, I can't even do that. He's commanded me, I can't do it. What am I supposed to do? If I just say, okay, whatever you want to say about Yeshua, I won't use his name, I'll come in anyway. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you need to understand. You're at the threshold. Things are about to happen that you don't understand. Stand fast. You're at the threshold. Just wait. Wait. It will become evident soon. And we're going to see as we move through this. The writer of the book of Hebrews may not know that the days of the temple are short. One thing he does know is that although the days of the temple uh, may or may not be short, that the days of the ones who were excluding these people from the temple, their days were short. And they needed to be patient. And they needed to be encouraged that to deny Yeshua would be a tremendous mistake. And that's why we've seen all the way through these first four chapters this point that he's been making. Is he's, he keeps building upon what he's been saying that this is a mistake if you, if you think that you could possibly deny Yeshua and remain in Judaism. The two cannot be compatible. And when we get to Romans, or excuse me, when we get to chapter six, much later from now, we're going to see this is the basis for his understanding. Well, we, we use it as a, you know, am I saved, lose my salvation, whatever else. He's drawing comparisons between them in Judaism with Yeshua, or trying to remain in Judaism without Yeshua. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Once they know him, once they know what it all means. To deny him is to deny the very things that they want to return to. <laughs> it's impossible. I'm preempting myself. I shouldn't do that. 
Hebrews 4.11 Diligently preparing We're diligently we're preparing That's how I was going to say that We're diligently preparing Is budazo And it's like speedy It means hurry up Hurry up yeah, it's like, well, isn't that what you do on Shabbat? It's like, oh, no, I won't be late. That's what Kevya says. I won't be late. <laughs> He's not late, but boy, we should wonder up until that point. <laughs> you seem to be doing a lot of dilly-dallying. Hurry up, milk the cow. Enough of the rich man. We have seen the writer of Hebrews' perspective on this faith and worse issue. He uses Shabbat, the Sabbath, the land and the eternal viewpoint to drive this common thing, work and rest. Sabbath is God's creation. Rest is his creation. The land was God's inheritance to Israel. They did not earn it. It was a gift. The world to come is God's invitation to his own people. You cannot earn it. It is a gift. All three, in all three, obedience does not achieve what God requires for us, but it remains our duty. This is the conundrum that we find ourselves in. Well, why should I do it? Why would you not? <laughs> He's your father. You don't want to obey him? You say you love him. Why would you not want to obey him? The work is all his that takes us into the Sabbath, the land, and the world to come. Working hard is preparation doesn't bring us Sabbath rest. It did not take the wilderness generation into the land. It will not take us into the world to come. Any final comments before we close in prayer? Let's close. Our Father, we thank you that you have, uh, you have sent us such a great leader and a great guide to bring us uh, to the threshold of the world to come. To bring us to the threshold of the land. And you've given us such great examples. And we thank you for Moses. We thank you for Aaron, for Miriam, for the faithful, for the, for the two, Joshua and Caleb, who gave a good report. We thank you for their example as men, women, who are faithful. The Father, most of all, we thank you for Yeshua, who takes us in, who has finished all the work that you required, who has done it all. Father, we thank you that you have done this for us, not that we can continue to wander, but that we can live fruitful and productive lives in the land that you have put us in, with the assurance that we spend eternity with you. Father, we thank you for this sound teaching. And we thank you for the writer of this book and for his faithfulness. And Father, we thank you that you have given to us this book. And we praise you in all the things that you have showed to us. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natanlanu Torah Temet Vechai Olam Tabetocheinu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God King of the universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah Amen